Welcome to the second session of Compliance Pagoda. I said it right that time. I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> Literally every time I've said it since the first episode that we did together, I think I've said it wrong. So that's that's a big thing for me. And uh, I think the last time that we met was before the, the shutdown, uh, pandemic shutdown. So this is really exciting to have you back on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here and happy to sort of give you a rundown on different compliance ins and outs current events and and some other things as well. So happy to be here. Cool. Well, uh, you know, world's been pretty quiet for the last six months. Yeah, <laughs> not much has happened in the news. <laughs> there, there's been a lot of focus on the pandemic, coronavirus, COVID-19, however you want to phrase it, it. It has been quite the paradigm shift, <clears throat> not just here in the United States, but globally. Mm-hmm. And that has definitely been reflected in compliance. So first thing that uh, recently happened was the OCC has proposed a rule to clarify what it calls the true lender rule. So really what this is, is in a lot of third-party relationships, financial institutions, specifically here, we're talking about national banks. Okay. Are They deal with auto lenders. They deal with third-party loan servicing companies, things of that nature. And it sometimes can be unclear as to whether or not those third parties the banks are dealing with are themselves considered, quote unquote, lenders for purposes of compliance and and other reasons as well. Yeah. So what this rule would say is that, no, those essentially those third parties are not, quote unquote, lenders. There's one true lender, and that lender is really going to be the national bank. How the the rule itself is phrased is the lender is going to be whoever actually gives the money for the loan okay. or who, or whoever is listed as the lender on the note for the loan. Uh, it should be one and the same, ideally. Uh, there might be some participation situations where it's not, but for all intents and purposes. So the reason why that's a good thing in the compliance world is I think it, it definitely clears up a lot of ambiguity and takes sort of the pressure and onus off of some of those third-party actors to work with financial institutions to offer loans to more people. So, Okay. So talking like a, a car dealership doesn't have to worry about being the lender because they're working with a credit union or you know a local bank to, to provide credit to their, their, their buyers. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So this specific rule is an OCC rule. The OCC has jurisdiction over just national banks. However, it's sort of seen as kind of the first establishment of this rule that that should hopefully trickle down in one form or another to the other regulatory agencies that that deal with state chartered banks and those sorts of small local community banks as well as credit unions. So it, it's definitely a good thing. Uh, another thing, next. yeah. So another thing in the news that happened that isn't really directly related to COVID, but is just kind of an interesting development is. There's been discussion of uh, Ms. Julie Shelton being nominated as uh, governor for the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. So why that's particularly interesting is uh, Ms. Shelton has stated in the past that she does not necessarily believe in fiat currency, that she supports gold as kind of the metric for 
you know, being a reserve currency. And so definitely more of a conservative bent, I would say, in a lot of her ideas around monetary policy. Why that's kind of a big deal is of all the regulatory agencies, the Federal Reserve tends to be, I would say, in my opinion, kind of the most conservative. Uh, or sorry, uh, other way around, the most progressive. <laughs> the most progressive, okay. Yeah, so you have individuals like Leo Brainerd who, who they tend to be more on the progressive end of things. So to have somebody who's got these really sort of traditionally conservative fiscal ideas potentially being nominated to the Federal Reserve, that could be a pretty seismic shift. Yeah. So there, there have been other proposed changes to regulatory rules that aren't necessarily related to COVID. I won't go too into detail on those, but things like – the qualified mortgage definition, that's going to be tied more to um, sort of the, the rate on the loan versus Appendix Q. For those of you listening to this podcast who hate Appendix Q, hopefully that's <laughs> going away in the future. So there are sort of these been long in the works regulatory changes that are starting to come about. There hasn't really been anything finalized on those, so I won't really go into detail on those here. Uh, another one that Casasa has dealt with quite a bit is the broker deposits rule potentially changing to allow for a more, a, 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 on one hand, a, sort of a more open process, but on the other hand, it, it kind of is going to require the FDIC's approval before different entities are exempted from the broker deposits definition. So, so that's something we've got our eye on, but really nothing finalized yet on that stuff. Okay. Is the comment so, period still open for that? It is. Okay. It, 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 or uh, you know what? I apologize. It is not currently. Okay. Open. It was so extended. It, it is that. extended, but it has closed. So we're currently awaiting guidance from the FDIC on what the final rule is going to be. Okay. So, Interesting. Yes. So, so uh, we had uh, kind of before this call, we talked a little bit mm-hmm. about some of the rollbacks. Um, right. You want to touch on that? Yeah. So I. I, I use the term rollbacks. I'm kind of hesitant to use that term because it almost implies that it's permanent. We don't know if these are going to be – so maybe temporary rollbacks would be a, a better term to use. But okay. uh, So basically what you've, what you've got here is in, res, in response to the COVID pandemic, aside from things like the PPP that everybody kind of knows about, all these sort of assistance programs that are being run through banks, the federal regulatory examiners themselves are giving – financial institutions a bit of a break on some things. So to provide an example or a couple examples of these sort of rollbacks or sort of hands-off approaches, Mm -hmm. uh, the NCUA, which is the regulator who regulates credit unions, they have adopted sort of a remote compliance approach where they're going for more off-site, so pretty much everything off-site examinations and supervisions. They put out this bulletin in March that's still uh, technically active that essentially says that examinations will be conducted off-site, that credit union employees won't be forced to go to the credit union branch or location to retrieve documentation to give to these off-site examiners. And there's also been some relaxation in the schedule for certain examinations. So that's just one example of of something that's that's happened there. And another example is the FDIC actually issued what I would consider a really helpful FAQ. And this oh. was back in May, uh, tw- May 27th to be specific. 
So if you just look up FDIC coronavirus FAQ on Google or something like that, you can pull it well, up. We'll, but you know what? We'll, we'll include a link in the show notes. Great. So what, essentially what that has is it's not so much talking about examinations like the NCUA letter, but it has a lot of sort of practices that FDIC regulated banks can implement to not have to worry as much. Things like payment accommodations, dealing with delinquent loans, classifying TDRs, which is trouble debt restructuring. So dealing with a lot of kind of delinquent loans or loans where people aren't paying, sort of allowing for breaks on those kinds of things. There are, okay. are also there are also provisions dealing with CRA, which is Community Reinvestment Act. We talked about that a little bit on the last podcast, giving additional credit in certain situations for providing coronavirus relief. So, uh. so yeah, so that's it's not so much a rollback uh, with those sorts of things as kind of adding additional bonuses or incentives for assisting customers with coronavirus issues. Gotcha. All right. Well, that, so that makes sense. And then yeah. uh, we also, when we were you know prepping for this call, we talked a little bit about the Reg D. Right. Um, what's yeah, so, happening there? So that's probably the biggest quote unquote rollback issue that's related to coronavirus. So essentially what they've done is because banks aren't necessarily required to have the reserves that they were required to have before the pandemic. So reserves being you have to have so many deposits in order to lend a certain amount mm -hmm. because that's essentially been relaxed. There, there was a previous restriction where if you had what was classified as a quote unquote savings account, you weren't allowed to make certain transfers from that savings account uh, more than six per month. You were limited to six transfers per month. And this okay. is a pretty common, you may just be familiar when you, when you open a, an account at your local credit union or bank, they say, oh, if you have a savings account, you can't do more than six transfers per month. That's because it's, it relates to this law. Anyway, because they relaxed the reserve requirements, they also got rid of the six per month cap. Okay. So, so what that effectively means is you, if you have a savings account at a bank or a credit union, you can use that essentially the exact same as you would a checking account. You can mm. withdraw from the account. You can deposit into the account, use it, have money going in and out of there, transferring to other accounts, what have you, internal accounts, external accounts, just like you would a checking account. Now, uh, it's important to point out, though, that even though the law says that you can do that, institutions still, as they're part of their policy, can and may impose their own caps on savings accounts. Okay, so it's not it, it, you, you're not forced to comply with this in the sense that you also have to change your product design to, to match this and, and make it, you know, you, you're not, you don't get in trouble if you impose your own limits is what you're saying. Right. If you're in, if you're a financial institution, you get, don't get in trouble for imposing your own limits. There may be very good policy reasons why you want savings account money to be sort of the more sticky money or money that mm -hmm. sticks close to your institution than money just flying all over the place going in and out. What it does mean, though, is let's say you want to give your customers a break. You want to advertise a higher rate of return on deposit accounts. Mm -hmm. you, you can, if you choose, at least for the time being, promote those accounts as 
being similar to checking accounts. You don't have to worry about the six per month restriction under the law. If you want to go that route, it's kind of up to you. Do you feel like that's a big, there's a lot of appeal in that for consumers? There may be. It's really going to depend on each individual FI. I think there's definitely appeal for consumers in that they would be earning a higher rate. Okay. Sort of the catch-22 with this is even though the law is, the way, if you read the, the actual change to the law, it looks like it's permanent. In reality, these reserve requirements are going to return when things return to normal. It's very possible they'll just change it back to the way it was, reimpose the six per month, and you could potentially be left out there hanging as you, you advertise that people can use these accounts and withdraw however much they want, however much frequency per month, just like a checking account, and now you can't do that anymore. Kind of get caught in that position. So Yeah, especially you know, if that's if you're incorporating, I could see incorporating that into your marketing and then you need to, you know, when that role, you know, when it returns to the the normal state of things, you know, the six per month and you have to, you know, take, take that back or make that right. change. Anyway, it's just, it's just something that potentially provides more flexibility for FIs. And I'd say it's the biggest sort of quote unquote rollback change. Okay, great. Well, thanks for going over those. Um, sounds like there's some, some good stuff in there. Uh, let's move on to the frequently asked questions. So for those of our listeners who may not know, uh, James is our compliance manager and he is just incredible at this. <laughs> and, uh, every time we talk, I am amazed at the kinds of questions that, that he brings up that, you know, people have asked him and it just has incredible amount of expertise. So we devote a section of the show to just, uh, sharing some of those questions and, uh, and James's answers. So let's dive in. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the kind words. I really enjoy compliance. I'm total compliance nerd through and through. It's sort (laughs) of, this is why we have this podcast, uh, session with you because someone who's passionate about compliance is going to make it so much more enjoyable for the rest of us. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of my, it's my secret passion in life. Well, not so secret now, right? But uh, my, my it's on the favorite, internet. <clears throat> right? My favorite segment, really, of this podcast is going to be these FAQs because they they really get to sort of a lot of the questions that our our Kasasa FIs actually ask us and then want answers to. So, um, sort of the first question that we get quite a bit, which the answer may be surprising to some FIs out there, is regarding really marketing of deposit accounts. So this common question is, can my deposit accounts at my institution be advertised as quote-unquote free accounts if those accounts potentially have overdraft charges and fees attached to them? This is very common, obviously, with Kasasa products, Kasasa Cash, Kasasa Cashback. We are very proud to advertise those as free accounts. We believe completely thoroughly that those accounts are quote-unquote free as described in the truth and savings statute and regulation, they can be called free. Now, the question is, if those accounts have overdraft charges and fees attached to them, right? those are charges. So is it fair or is it even legal to advertise those accounts as free? And is, it where, is this where we get into the wording around maintenance fees or monthly maintenance fees? Like the, the fact that some accounts you're paying for the privilege of having the account regardless of how much money's in it or, or, or whatever versus like if you use the account a certain way, 
such as overdrawing it, there's just a fee for that. Yeah, that's that's 100% correct. So th- by every indication you can advertise, you, you are allowed to advertise accounts that have overdraft fees and charges attached to them as free. It is okay. If you have a, an auditor or examiner that comes in to your bank and says you can't advertise these as free, they've got overdraft charges attached, and you don't mention anything about overdraft at all in those advertisements because that that does bring in some compliance issues. But as long as you've got an ad, it says the account is free and you don't say anything about overdraft, that's fine, even if overdraft fees could be assessed. And the reason why is just what you said, Zach. It's the fee is attached more to an individual activity that is separate and apart from maintaining, opening, keeping money in the account. I mean, theoretically, it, you could have the account for your entire life and never get charged an overdraft fee, but that's, that's based right. on your behavior, not on the, the structure of the product. That's right, and it's 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 how the using the account the way it was intended to be used, right? Gotcha. You, nobody, you don't open an account and sign a signature card, open a deposit account with the intent. At least you shouldn't, ideally, <laughs> with the intent of consistently overdrawing it, right? It's not how the account is intended to be used. Well, and so who does, that, that doesn't hurt anybody but you as the account holder too. So, right, right, exactly, yeah. So, so I mean, if you look at there's a lot of guidance out there. There's guidance from the Federal Reserve when they passed the overdraft changes to the rule in 2005. It specifically says that you can advertise accounts as free, even if they have overdraft fees attached to them. It doesn't say that in the regulation. I'll give you that. It doesn't specifically say overdraft fees and charges are excluded from this issue, but it's been that has been said in guidance before, and it's pretty pretty commonly understood so okay well and geez i mean we've got you know more than 600 almost 700 institutions who are you know using this language in 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 various forms um and if they were in the wrong i think we'd probably have heard about it right 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 exactly (laughs) but we do still hear of auditors from time to time sort of calling this out as an issue but we always provide them the same guidance and it's it's there. So if you have any questions about this, feel free to reach out to us to, to reach out to our CST representatives and, and that will definitely get passed on to compliance and we can help with this issue further if anyone has okay. any questions on that. Great. All right. Well, let's, so, let's go on to, on, on to the next question. Um, and I'll, 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 play, uh, I'll, I'll play community bank or credit union leader and I'll ask the question. So sure. in works. light of the pandemic, can I provide more beneficial terms and conditions without having to send out new disclosure, a new disclosure to consumers and or wait 30 days. Right. What's and, going on in this? And this, we, <clears throat> this has come up quite a bit, as you can imagine, in the last few months with banks trying to appeal to their customers' concerns, sort of assuage their fears with COVID. So the, the short answer is yes, you can. As long as whatever perk that you're offering additionally is – beneficial to the consumer. So it's not the the term the regulation uses is adverse. So if it's not adverse to the consumer's interest, then yes, you can make that change to the account, even though it changes the terms of the account. And you are not required at that point to provide the customer with a nutrition and savings disclosure or 30 days notice. That being said, it's a good idea to at least provide them with some sort of written description of the things you are changing. 
it's highly recommended best practice to do that. Also, the big, it reflects well on you as the institution to do so. Definitely, definitely. And also the really big risk to keep in mind with this is what do you do when COVID is over and things go back to normal? And let's say you turn the terms back to the way they used to be. You may think, oh, well, that's just reflecting the written truth and savings disclosure I originally provided, right? So no big deal. So technically at that point, what you're doing though, by moving things back to normal is you're making a change that is adverse to the consumer. So then at that point, when you change things back, you would have to provide a truth and savings disclosure. Even if it's the same one you already provided, you're going to have to provide that again, or at least a notice of what you're doing, a description of what you're doing. And you're going to have to wait 30 calendar days before you can make that change. Okay. Wow. Well, that, that is really helpful. I can see how that would be sort of confusing. For right. sure. So let's, let's do the next one. Uh, okay. Can I offer a promotion that ties account benefits, loan rates, et cetera, to sporting events in the community? Hmm. Yeah. So this is one that it comes up quite a bit around the fall. Maybe not so much this year because unfortunately a lot of sporting events and, and schools are going to be closed or, or postponed and things like that. But uh, I think this is a good time to address this sort of concern. So one common iteration of, of this issue is a lot of small community financial institutions, banks, things like that, will run a promotion where they will say, open a checking account today. And if the local high school football team scores a touchdown on Friday, for every touchdown they score, you get an extra 0.1% APY on your checking mm. account, something like that. So that you can you can offer that, but it's really really not a good idea for a lot <laughs> of reasons. Say this this sounds. I mean, I, the thought that came to my mind when I saw this is like, doesn't it? Does that get into the gambling territory? Right. So not only would something like that be considered straight up gambling in certain states based on those state laws, you have some states that are very very restrictive when it comes to gambling. Don't allow any even raffles or lotteries or anything at all. Uh, and, and you have some states where they do allow it, but that's completely controlled and sort of monopolized by the state itself. And that's an important source of revenue for the state. They don't want any competition. So there's <laughs> that. But especially oh, for especially for banks, more importantly, there are what's called the anti-lottery statutes or rules where a bank – and this, this passed in the 60s. It was because they were worried about the impression of banks being used as essentially casinos to mm. gamble with depositors' money. They say a bank, not only can it not host a, what it calls a lottery itself, but it can't be even associated with it. So the reason why something like this might be considered a lottery is someone's coming into a bank, right, and they're opening a deposit account. Mm -hmm. So they're giving the bank business. They're giving the bank what the statute terms money or credit, right? Yeah. And they're doing that in the expectation that they will have a shot at a prize to be mm. determined randomly. And the prize would be the higher interest rate based on the result of the football game. So arguably, that's a lottery under the anti-lottery statutes in addition to the gambling issues. It's it's just not a really good practice to do. A lot of community <laughs> it sounds great, but then doesn't play out well. Yeah, a lot of community financial institutions, you know, that well, we've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, so they they keep doing it. It's really, you know, big success for them. I, I obviously compliance risk is is going to be on those institutions. They can do what they want, but 
I, I consider this an increasingly risky practice. So gotcha. Well, that's you know what I, re- I appreciate you bringing that up because we just the episode we just released we were talking about seasonal marketing and, and we've got this whole campaign that that we've uh, created for our institutions to be able to use and go ahead and start planning their Q3 and Q4 uh, marketing strategies, you know, and those are going to be, you know, there's going to be some of the sports themed, you know, advertisements and all that stuff. So I could see, you know, if you're planning ahead for the second half of the year, uh, this is, this is very relevant. Now I'm curious, you know, we're, 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 we're coming here to the end of the episode, but I am curious if there is a method that a, a a bank or credit union could use that would like kind of like tie in and support the local you mm-hmm. know football team or whatever it is you know but that that sidesteps this whole gambling um, swamp. Yeah, sure. So some institutions they'll actually name their checking accounts after the local sports team. They'll call it the Blue Raiders checking account or something. Or. Okay. Or they'll have credit cards that are branded as the local institution, as the local sports team. So they'll have your Red Raiders credit card or debit card. Uh, so those those are just some options to where you can sort of show your spirit and appeal to those folks who are or diehard sports fans in your community. Another thing is there are often sort of charity promotions whereby. You know, you agree to you open an account, and then for so much money that your account earns, a bit, a little bit is set aside for the whatever the local team is. Promotions okay. like that tend to be, they tend to be fine. Um, that there's there's for the most part no compliance implications with with really those kinds of ways of showing your support. It's it's sort of the gambly kind of stuff that you need to be worried about. Another one, uh, just real quick here, is the half court shot or the the half rink shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're FI and you're supporting those sorts of contests, I, I would highly discourage doing that, especially if the sporting event charges admission to get in, because that could raise anti-lottery issues. Oh wow! Wait, so you're saying, yeah, we're almost out of time, but you're saying that you yeah. could, they could theoretically sponsor the halftime shot, and be considered in violation of the anti-lottery rules. Be just not even be, they're not like providing, even if they weren't providing the prize for the shot. Right? That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, right. Yeah, they, they can't. It, that's correct. Even if, if regardless of if they're providing the prize themselves or not, it, even if they sponsor it, they're associating themselves with a quote unquote lottery. Wow. So I yeah. had no idea. This, yeah. uh, this, and this is why we have you on the Compliance <laughs> Pagoda to bring these things to light, because it's interesting. And who would have thought? I mean, it yeah. sounds so innocent on the front end, like you're just supporting the local sports team. You know, what's the big deal? Right. And I am sympathetic to the fact that there are small community institutions that have done these kinds of promotions forever with little or no scrutiny. It's just what they've always done. They feel comfortable about it. All I would recommend to those institutions is to take a second look and really consult with your compliance folks and your legal folks and make sure that whatever promotion you're running is buttoned up and isn't going to cause problems with with the laws or regs. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us. And uh, this has been a pleasure, as always. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship or representation regarding any potential engagement. The information provided in the podcast is not intended as legal, accounting, audit, or other professional advice. 
if such advice is required. Please consult with your own professional advisor or auditor. Thanks again for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced and distributed by Kasasa. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leaving a review. It helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at kasasa.com.